Please be seated, and as you're seated, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. And today we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 16. We'll focus on the whole chapter this time, Genesis chapter 16. This week I was interacting with someone on, on why we preach the way that we preach, um, you know, why pastors choose certain methods. And, you know, I was just thinking about, you know, why do we do this chapter by chapter, verse by verse, book by book. And, you know, one of the reasons that drives us in this is this belief that, you know, this is God's word, inspired word, inerrant word, which is given to us. And what we want to know as we uh, read this word and meditate on it is, what does the Lord say to us? What does the Lord say to us today? And that's the thing that is most matters to us. And I know it's what most matters to you is you're here today. What does the Bible say? And then how do we understand it? How do we understand it? How do we apply it? And, you know, that's the reason why we do this, you know, from the beginning of Genesis to the end, looking at almost every verse along the way and, um, and seeing not only what does it say, what does it mean, but also how do we apply it. And it gives us a time to, to meditate on it, to think about it and you know, we're all facing different issues, all different challenges and different questions and different way forward right now. And as we just meditate on this passage, it gives us a chance to consider the application of it for our own situation, our own life, and be able to apply it in obedience to God and service to him and, and in really in desire to please him. So, so that's, that's why we do this. It's why I encourage you, bring your own Bible. Um, is why I encourage a paper Bible. We do have paper Bibles in the back because it allows us to underline and circle and, and, and highlight things, take notes to highlight things that you say, I really want to hold on to this uh, for the future and then talk about it afterwards in care groups. You know, because again, this is the word of God which is given for us. It's the word of God which is given for you, for your life, your walk with him. Man does not live on bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. So let's uh, together, well, let's uh, look at Genesis Chapter 16, and I'll read verses 1 through 16. This is the word of God. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai... Abram's wife took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. 
because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be like a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Laharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, who Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of God. May add his blessing to the reading of it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come in today into this worship service in response to you. You as creator call us to worship. You set aside one day out of seven to worship you. You as redeemer have said that we no longer uh, belong to this world and its sin and its patterns, but Father, we belong to you. And so God, we come to you as redeemer. Father, we come to you to hear your word because Father, in that rest that you give us today, you want to speak to us. You want to speak into our minds and our hearts and our wills, Father, that we'd be different. And so Father, for that to happen, you need to do that work that we need in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Father, may my words be plain and clear, understandable and true. And Father, may our understandings be um, clear and our attention there as we worship you in the listening and the consideration of your word. We ask you, God, for your blessing in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever had to take matters into your own hands? There are reasons that we have to take matters into our own hands. Sometimes we have to do it because nobody else is doing anything, right? Um, and so there's nobody else to do it. And sometimes maybe we don't need to do it, and we end up in some trouble for it. I was thinking of some examples that are here. I read a, a story uh, this week about an 11-year-old child with a learning disability. Um, he couldn't read for some medical issues that he had, but he saw the homeless people and the people needing food in his uh, community. I think he was in London. And he put together a plan to build his own uh, food pantry. And so out of this food pantry, he's uh, built it up, and there was a, enough need in it in this neighborhood and community that, um, he, that some people had eventually volunteered to buy him a shed, and then other people volunteered to buy a, a, a van for the ministry. He's 11, so he doesn't drive it, and his parents drive him around in it. But he found a wonderful opportunity that people weren't doing anything to care for the needs of those, and he took some matters in his own hand, and he started this ministry of, of feeding the people in his community. I also read a story this week, and maybe you did too, about um, a man who, because he had different political opinions of somebody else, he, he went into somebody else's home and violently attacked somebody. You know, he thought, well, I don't agree with these. These are evil. These are wrong. I'm going to take matters in my own hands and do something about it. You see, sometimes we can take matters in our own hands in an evil way. We also see unproductive ways and even unfruitful ways that we might take matters in our own hands. Um, this week, I had... Um, and he gets some tree work done, and so I had somebody look at the trees and get an estimate putting it together. But, you know, I just, you know, if you hate to spend money, you might ask that question. You know, what if I did this myself? You know, I mean, yeah, they, they might be really, really tall, but, you know, I'd like to spend some money. I can take some matters in my own hands and, and take down those trees. And, well, you know, if you just do a little bit of YouTube searching on what happens when people try to take down their trees. Um, you know, it's a good lesson. It's a good lesson for most of us. If you know Jay Storms at all, I mean, he can lay down a tree, you know, between um, two buildings. But most of the people who try, it ends up on the building or on the car or, you know, that idea of putting the ladder up next to the, to the tree never makes good sense. 
Uh, you might take matters in your own hands and you might get hurt in it. So sometimes it works out, right? I mean, sometimes we like that sense of control. Other times it doesn't. Other times we just see grave and great damage happening because of it. And the story which we read just a minute ago out of Genesis 16 is a story of two people taking matters in their own hands. And then you see a lot of fallout happen. Fallout happening between them and their marriage. You see fallout happen between them and uh, one of the other ladies in their life. And really, fallout that's going to happen for generations on down the line past the decision they make. And so there is... Um, so. And so when we think about this, we recognize there's, you know, before anybody, before we ever take matters in our own hands, there's a grave concern and considerations we ought to take uh, before we do that. So we're going to look at that as we look at Genesis uh, chapter 16. There really are two big sections of this, of this passage. Uh, verses 1 through 6 describe the decision that's made. And then verses 7 through 16 deal with the long-term, the short and long-term fallout. Of, of that decision. So uh, let's look, starting in verses 1 through 6, as we look at the fallout of faithless living. Uh, when we arrive in um, Genesis 16, you know, we see the struggle, struggle that's going on with Abram and with his wife, uh, Sarah. Ten years before, God had told them to go into this promised land, and he'd promised to make them into a great nation. Uh, but despite that this promise had been given, uh, they didn't even have a single child, not one at this point. And so we read in verse 1, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Now, if you jump back just a chapter to Genesis 15, you remember that, that God promised that Abram would have a son, but he's not there yet. Maybe they misunderstood God. You know, maybe they needed to take matters into their own hands. I mean, Sarai was 75 years old. Surely she was past the years of childbearing. Um, besides, God didn't say that the son would necessarily be born through his wife. Back in Genesis 15, maybe it was someone else. And, and you know, he couldn't be saying that possibly that uh, she would have that child. And so she puts together a plan. And you see it at the end of verse 1, end of verse 2. It says, she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, that I shall obtain children by her. That's easy to be sympathetic with Sarai. You can imagine the shame that she's carrying. You know, verse 1, Sarai had borne Abram no children. Ancient societies that she was living in uh, put a lot of weight on bearing children for wealth, for family tradition, for security. And you can imagine not only when she looks out at others and interacts with them, but also when she's interacting with her husband that, that she hadn't, that they had yet been able to have children. I mean, today we might know medical reasons why a couple can't have children. They didn't know that then. It was carried by her in this. You know, back then people um, wanted to have children. You know, that's one of the differences with today's age, some, a lot of couples don't want to have children at all, or, 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 or not many, but they, they wanted to. They had this vision of, of a great multitude coming after them. And so, you know, there was really a sense of shame that was connected with it, this, this feeling of shame. What's, what's wrong with us in this? Maybe she felt like she let Abram down, insecure about her place with Abram, about her place in God's plan. And so you can imagine, even after Genesis 15, there is a level of anxiety and a level of concern as she looked at their lives. 
And who of us have not at some time or another wondered that if we could endure a long time of waiting, if we could endure times of loneliness, times of financial stress, times of conflict, whether this time of anxiety, how long it would last, and, and, and the frustration and shame that we just have to keep dealing with it. And yeah, we could pray and, and persevere through it, but, but what if I could just take matters into my own hands, and what if I could just solve this problem now? There's something within us that wants to, to have that control, that wants to take matters into our own hands. And looking back, how many of us can look back at decisions we've made and realize that it led us in a destructive course of action. So out of her insecurity, she creates this plan that can pull her out of shame by providing a son for Abram. And she says that Abram should have a, a child with her slave girl, Hagar. Because Hagar is Sarah's slave, any child produced by Hagar could be claimed as Sarah's child. Right? It's offensive to us at many points to think about this, you know, it's, it's connected with a number of the other codes that existed in this area at the time. One reason I think it strikes us is we have the whole scripture laid before us. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament that's laid before us. But, you know, and, and we recognize God's moral code. And, and we recognize that God wanted this nation to be a different kind of nation. And we look at it through today's lens of, of looking back. But, but back then with the codes and the world that they lived in, it maybe it made some sense. But, there, but, you know, there's also something here that, you know, we, we see the problems with it. You know, Hagar's body, baby, would ultimately belong to someone else. It would ultimately belong um, not to Sarai, but to, or not to Hagar, but ultimately to Sarai to decide where she should go and to whom she should belong. You know, Sarai cho chooses here to be manipulative and controlling over both Abram and Sarai. No regard for the promises of God, and she chooses an evil to take away that own anxiety and her own shame. Right? If, this, if her husband can have this one thing, he'll be more safe and secure. She finally comes up with this after, after many years of marriage together and 10 years of waiting. There's a desperation that's here. And as Abram's wife, Sarah is supposed to be a helper. God created Eve to be Adam's helper, and Sarah is in the same place, Abram's helper. She wants to help Abram have a baby. That's a good thing. She wants to help fulfill those promises of God. That's a good thing. But she forgets what she's really supposed to be helping him towards. And that's to serve and to honor God. Well, I always have to think about the, uh, ladies especially, think about the influence that you bring to your marriage. Moving towards honoring the Lord. Or bringing away from that purpose. So Sarai though, is not the only sinner here. We see this by the end of verse 2, because the end of verse 2, it says, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. We see there's a difference that they're supposed to have there. And what does he do? But he abdicates his responsibility. He should have seen the faithlessness of the idea. He should have anticipated the problems that were going to be there. He should have told his wife no. Sometimes that's all that it takes. In Ephesians 5, the Bible commends husbands to love their wives through the washing of water through the word. And by working through that shame, by working through that disappointment that they were facing, he needed to direct their feet towards doing what was right. To see what God had already provided for them. To see through the manipulation for himself and, and the manipulation of Hagar, he needed to tell Sarai that this violated God's word 
It was contrary to the promise of God. That God would do what he promised to do, but, but, but he doesn't do that. That's the failure of many men to, to follow and to instead of lead. To abdicate the sin even when it comes from a wife. Why does he abdicate? I mean, we know why we might abdicate. Maybe he likes the idea of having a son, or maybe he likes how Hagar looks. Maybe he's tired of hearing the grieving of his wife, or maybe he's just passionate after the, 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 the fulfillment of this promise. Who knows how he justified his actions? We need to be people of, God's, of, of the word. Men, we need to be people of the word, people of, of godly principles in our families. And we sure that biblical principles lead and, and guide us in our homes. This is the way that men love. And it isn't by giving in to sinful and unwise decisions. Abram's abdication was his lack of love. And in doing this, Sarah's you know, sinful idea gets actualized. It, it should have been stopped, but in the end, both end up guilty. We need to be men, or we need men of moral vision, and we need women of moral support. We each have a role in this, but if we're driven by pragmatism, if we're driven by anxiety, you know, we end up, instead of drawing nearer to God through this relationship, we, we, drive, we end up farther away from him. We create all kinds of problems, right? We're going to see those as time goes on, as the verse goes on. Verse 3 in the beginning of verse 4 shows that everything worked as, as planned. Sarah's plan was a plan that worked, and, and you'd think they'd be happy, right? But they're not happy because a lot of problems happen, happen after this. That's what happens when there's an ignoring of God's law. The desire just to be happy. You know, we ignore it. It creates drama and it creates human fallout and, and grief. Verse 4, the end of verse 4 says, When Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked at contempt with her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So here, we, this, as Hagar is involved in this, her own sin shows up. Now that she's pregnant, she tries to show. Apparently, she's better than Sarai. She, maybe she wants Abram to make a trade, uh, trade Sarai for her. And we have this competitive cat fight that's going on inside of this home. And Sarai goes to Abram, and, and look who's to blame here. Abram's is. May the wrong done to me be on you. You know, there's that, this, just always a reminder that, that when someone asks us to participate with them in something that we shouldn't do, and then we do it, and then it doesn't go the way that's expected, guess what? It's not that we're going to say, oh, it's okay, I asked you to. No, you know, we're, there's a, you know, look, look what you did. Look what you made me do. Just a reminder of the, the importance of walking in truth. And Sarah even wants God to judge between them. I don't know that she'd get the answer that she wants. And God would look at them and say, guilty. You're both guilty. Abram can't say at this point, well, it was, it was your idea. It's because he went along with her plan. Remember that if we're a head of a home, that we have part in the decisions that are made. They're, they're, they become your decisions, and you can't put it on someone else. You can't blame someone else if things don't work out. It points us to challenge in this marriage. It makes us ask, how, how many marriage problems come because of marriage and abdication, or because of manipulation and abdication? Of manipulation and not doing the things we should. Both Abram and Sarai, they both fall into stereotypical patterns of sin here. It's a reminder to us of bring problems to their own role in marriage. 
How many of us failed to trust God's plan and trust our own ideas instead? That marriage, according to God's design, can be great. It's a great blessing. We can often in these things accept less than God offers. Verse 6 gets worse as they then really thrust Hagar out as the solution to this. Abram says to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar, and Hagar fled from her. You know, it appears that Hagar, that, I'm sorry, Abram, that Abram's checked out in this, right? He just abdicates again. Whatever you want, honey. You can imagine a modern vision of this. Maybe a guy playing video games or maybe watching a football game and his wife brings him some grave concern. Yeah, yeah, whatever, honey. Whatever you want to do, just go ahead and do, you know, treat, treat her however you want. You know, he's, maybe he's checked out or, or, you know, maybe men sometimes think, oh boy, now she's mad. And if she's mad, I just need to give her whatever she wants because that's the only way I'm going to get out of this doghouse. And so he adds to his sin. He gives her permission to do whatever she wants. There's not a care that's given for Hagar in this. Apparently caring little for the child that she carries. And this is his baby, but he abandons her. He, that's, that's how mad Sarah, Sarah is. And she can't show any compassion for this mother, this, this mother and her baby. And Sarah might, makes life unbearable for Hagar, and Hagar decides to leave the home. She leads into the wilderness, barefoot and pregnant, and a massive risk of life and limb. How could Abram and Sarai treat someone like this? How could they be approved by God in this? The Bible calls Abram righteous, and Sarai is held up as a model of godliness. And we recognize that the, the basis for all of that is grace. It's, it's God's grace. We always remember that we too are, are, are saved by grace and the, 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 the sins that he forgives, sins that we may not even know that we're participants in at times. You know, the Bible says in Psalm 19, for, you know, forgive me, Lord, of my hidden faults. And certainly at this time, Abram and Sarai around them have a pattern which the world follows, codes of the world which they'd adopted. You know, they're surrounded in this context and this life, but still... They stand guilty. You know, we recognize that God's people are called to be different. They're called to look different. And, and you even get the sense in waiting so long in order to implement this plan that, that they knew this was out of the ordinary. But by God's grace, it does not disqualify Abram and Sarai. Christ died for those sins. Christ came to die for your sins. He came to die for all sins of all of God's people. It does not disqualify them. Why'd they do this? They did this impatient with God's design, with God's timeline, wanting to make their own plan, doing it really for maybe their own happiness. Maybe you've heard things take matters in their own hands because, you know, they just knew that God wanted them to be happy. Maybe you've heard that. Somebody said that before. God wants me to be happy. And then they take matters in their own hands and then make all kinds of decisions contrary to God's word. Contrary to their witness, destroying family, and ending up with all kinds of problems. People say, God wants me to be happy. And before they get an unbiblical divorce and wreck what could be a good marriage. People say, God wants me to be happy. Before they marry someone they shouldn't. People say, God wants me to be happy. Before they get on a string of addicted drugs. People say, God wants me to be happy when they spend all their money on themselves and they ignore the needs of the people around them. Do you have something that you're doing 
something you know you shouldn't do, something you know you wouldn't have done, and you think, God wants me to be happy, and I'm just going after what he wants for me. One of the worst things you can do is to say, God wants me to be happy, and then follow after your own lusts. And yet it's a trap that many people fall into. It's a tantalizing trap. I mean, it sounds so right, it sounds so good, but when we pull away the mask, it's often just a mask for our own lust. I mean, what's the problem with this? One of the big problems is that we have a profound inability to know what will make us happy. We just don't know what's going to make us happy. We are so short-sighted for how we feel today, how we feel right now, that we don't realize that the same thing that makes us happy now may make us miserable in the future. In fact, this will happen tomorrow, right? Tomorrow is October 31st, and sometime tomorrow, probably a number of you are going to get a lot of candy in your house, and a lot of you are going to eat that candy, and you know what? Every bite is going to taste so good until what? The stomach gets a little upset, those pounds go on after a few years, right? You know, so that sense of that gratification of happiness can, can, can turn away into some sense of misery later. We also know, secondly, that, that our goal of being happy usually falls short of what God's goals are. The Bible doesn't emphasize happiness as much as it emphasizes the idea of joy. Whereas happiness is that euphoric feeling that comes and goes based on something that's going on in our lives and the way our body feels at that point, that joy is a deep-seated satisfaction that everything is good with you, that everything is good with the Lord. best thing to do, the thing we need to see is that where true joy really comes from is it really comes out of a clear conscience before God. It's that clear conscience that says that God, has, that God doesn't sell any of my sin against me that's been forgiven by Jesus, and, and more than that, that, that I'm walking with Christ and I have the joy of knowing that I am in the pleasure of God. There is a deep joy that's in there. A joy that comes to say, you know what, I, I know where I am. I'm forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ and wherever I am by the decisions I made or the circumstance in our life is that I can know the goodness of God right where I am. And knowing the goodness of God right where I am is that I can do um, in, in trust of God and obedience to his word to live for him in everything that I do. I'm not here by accident. I bring Christ with me wherever I go. And I can serve and obey him whatever is going on right now. And that includes in our marriages. That includes in our marriages. People get um, divorces. They get broken out of their marriages for all kinds of unbiblical reasons. But oftentimes, you'll hear one statement connected with it. God wants me to be happy. Now, there are biblical reasons for divorce. Those are there, but many people get married for unbiblical reasons. They just say they're not happy, that they have irreconcilable differences. And God wants me to be happy. But it's shortcuts. It shortcuts the work of God, and it's a sin against God. It's a violation of a vow. And when I do premarital counseling or work with others, you know, it's always, you know, I would say take divorce off the table and work to make the best marriage that you can have. Work to make the best marriage that you can um, make together. You know, take it out of your vocabulary. Don't use it ever as a joke. And then given your circumstances, you know, work to be the best husband you can be. Work to be the best wife that you can be. But there's got to be a contentment that starts there to say this is not outside of God's control. There's no accident that I'm here where I am. And I have the opportunity to steward and to build my marriage by faith and trust in God. 
That's the best we can do, to trust in God, to obey his commands, to let his word to shape us into the person he wants us to be. I mean, a committed marriage is a great place for God to shape and to form us. Too many people, they, they, they leave marriages and they, 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 they fail to become that person that God would have them to be. They abandon wife and, and, and husband and, and child and leaving them in the wind and with difficulties and sorrows for themselves. Too many people give up on a spouse who's also growing too. So God's plan for marriage is it lasts until the death of one spouse. And we're the ones who trust God in that. I read recently that, that people who are unhappy in their marriages, if they just wait five years and work through things for five years, is that the majority of them, vast majority, like you know, 70%, 75%, say they're either happy or very happy in their marriages after five years of difficulty. Or not of difficulty, but of working through those difficulties. You know, the things can change. That's the way that God works. All right, so we're going to turn from them, this faithless decision, which has its consequences, um, you know, with, with their trusting God. Let's turn down to Hagar and what Hagar does here. And more importantly, what Hagar does, what God does, right? So we see here in verse 7 um, that God seeks out Hagar. God seeks him out. Verse 7 says, the angel of the Lord sought him out. But if you look all the way down to verse 13, Hagar knew who was visiting with him. It was with her. It was the Lord. It was God Himself. The angel of the Lord is a short um, is is a phrase that the Bible uses often to describe um, the, the the physical presence of God. So Genesis sixteen seven, the angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. So Hagar's mistreatment has become so bad, she does not want to stay. She flees. She chooses to leave and to go away. And, and God doesn't just look at her and, and leave her alone and said, oh, go figure it out. He doesn't say, now you get back here and be where you're supposed to be. No, he actually goes out to comfort her. We can read Psalm 99. It's a reminder to us that the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And he asks this question of her. Where have you come from and where are you going? I mean, he knows where she is, but she needs again to know where she is. It's a great picture of prayer that, that God knows where you are, but he talks to you. He wants you to talk about where you are. He asks this question to bring her out. Then in verse 9, he shows what she should do. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. I mean, it's a tough instruction. She had a difficult situation, but the Lord directs her back. Why? I mean, she's now Abram's wife. We saw that in verse 3. She carries Abram's child. She needs his protection. God, God has a plan for this child. We also see that. There's nowhere else to go. There's no safe place that will take care of her and her son. But Abram will, and he has a, he has a duty to do so. And she has a responsibility to go back under that care. And there, there are times where, where God calls us to difficult things, and this is certainly a difficult call. Why would God ask us to do something that's so hard, so difficult? Why would he ask us to something that would seem to make us so unhappy? And here's what we know, here's what we remember, is that, that the plans of the Lord are greater than our plans, that, that he has a bigger vision. He has a design and he has a purpose. And God is working for our joy. He is working for our long-term joy. He's working for more than our, just, our, our temporary happiness. 
And we also remember for Hagar, what other options does she have really? We like to think we live in a world full of options. But we realize often that options evaporate for people. The choices that we have have their own consequences. People around the world are stuck in situations that they would like to be out of, but they can't. But in an amazing way, even then, God provides for them. We'll never be in a situation that God can't handle. And so don't, don't get me wrong. If there's abuse in your marriage or any other relationship, you know, you need to make those issues to be known. Whether it's physical or verbal or emotional, it's still a problem. Genesis 69 doesn't say that you shouldn't work through those difficult situations. This is Hagar's best option. It's her recourse. You have other help. If there's abuse, get help, address it. You know, that's what we have elders that are here for us. What we have counseling to deal with, to help in those situations. We remember here that God has a greater plan. And Hagar is fitting into that greater plan. We see in verse 10, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. You know, see this promise that's given to her, and it's, it's so similar to what God gave to Abram. It's going to be a different lineage than this promised seed of Abram. But he has a plan. And it's part of the reason she needs to go back. She may have a hard time living as a part of that village, but God is going to use those difficulties to do something great. And then verse 11, the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And so while going back would not be easy, that she has a promise that can get her through. God listened to her. You see that? God listened to her. And her son is going to be called Ishmael because God listened to her. God cared enough to listen. And isn't that our big prayer? You know, we just pray to God, God, whatever difficulties that I'm going to face, you know, I know I can face them if just I have you in my life. As long as you're listening, as long as you're seeing, as long as you're with me, as long as you're with me in that time of need, God, I know that I can endure so much. There's not a solution that's here for her. She needs to go back and it's going to be, you know, there's going to be some difficulties that are here. But God is with her. He listens to her and he sees. Verse 12 goes on to describe the kind of person that Ishmael will be. Verse 12 says, he will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all of his kinsmen. It's kind of one of those, seems like one of those statements that says something like, well, he's going to have the face that only a mother could love. But I think, I think, I, I think it's taken differently. You know, I mean, it, Ishmael is going to create some problems for the people around them. I think this appeals to her sense of justice here, right? She's being mistreated. Her son would likely be mistreated, and would he still be okay? Apparently, that the people who mistreat him would have some consequences of his, of, for mistreating him. Ishmael would be strong and independent. But we see the difficulty that he's going to have. He's going to be wild, difficult to tame, difficult, hard, you know, have, have uh, challenging relationships with people. And that would create long-term difficulty for Abram's family, Abram's descendants, Isaac's descendants. So these nations that were around Israel, ancient Israel, were descendants of Ishmael. Their people gave him trouble. Abram and Sarai didn't know this, but, you know, as they entered in this plan, they created significant problems for their descendants. This whole scheme created all kinds of problems, and many would suffer for it. And here's the thing, though is that even then we know that Jesus Christ would come to die for elect from every nation, including Ishmael's descendants. 
The Bible says that people from every tribe and nation would be in heaven. It didn't matter how antagonistic that these people were, um, that they would be moved from outsiders to insiders. It's the same with you. No matter your past, you can come and be reconciled with the Lord. Our destiny is shaped by faith, by faith in Jesus Christ, not by nationality. So what does Hagar do here? Verse 13, she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, for she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. She worships. God has spoken with her. She speaks back with God. You know, she's entering back into a difficult situation, but she knows she can trust. She can trust God, and she's going to obey the command of the Lord in this, the direction of the Lord. She comes out of her, out of her isolation in the comfort of the Lord. So what do we do? What do we make out of this event? Well, you might be in a difficult time of life. You might be in a difficult marriage. You might be in a dead-end job. Your boss may not like you. Your family life might be tumultuous. You might be facing uh, a serious sickness. You might feel like you don't have any good options. Maybe you want to take matters into your, in, in your own hands. What do you need to do? What do we see in this? The first thing is to obey God. You don't need to sin and create new problems. Don't give up listening to the word of God and applying it to your situation. You know, that's what we do as we take time to meditate on God's word, as, you know, as we hear the word preached, as we go to Sunday school, or we're part of Caregivers, we're just thinking through God's word and applying it to our lives. Right? We have counseling. We get counsel if we need. Counsel for friends, counsel from the church, counsel for elders. But you know, as we look and we look at our situation, we apply God's word to what is going on right now obeying his word. The second thing is we grow in Christ. We grow in Christ. Why? Is because obedience is, is difficult, right? God calls us to difficult things. We see it here. Abram and Sarai, long-term waiting for the fulfillment of this problem. Hagar to go back into um, the home which, uh, which she was supposed to be at. God asks us to do very difficult things, even impossible things, but he promises us to send grace and power to help us in them. Like, we don't get any of that by checking out, by giving up. Let's come in growing our relationship with Christ and saying, Lord, help me in this. I know what I should do. I just need your help. Help me to know what Jesus has done for me. Help me to know who you are. We've grown Christ. And the third thing is to remember that God is near you. Look for God's kind providence all around you. Just like Hagar did, we need to worship you know, our, our joy in this life is a fruit of, a holy, of, of the Holy Spirit filling us and, live, and directing us. And you can grow in joy as delight in God's presence. Happiness, uh, our, our happiness may depend on our circumstances, but true joy is dependent on the health of our soul. And so we, we ask, Lord, restore me, make me healthy. Remember, God is near. And we need to remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ promises joy when we're with him. He wants our joy to be full. And he reminds us that, that joy um, comes even when things don't go our way. Right? Joy comes when we have a heart that is conformed to God's will. And maybe you can wonder if, you know, can God possibly love me with all this happening in my life right now? Can God possibly love me with the things that I've done? But God proves his love through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know his love, Despite your circumstances, you look to the cross. As you believe in him, as you believe in Jesus Christ, he forgives your sins. 
As you believe in him, he draws you close. He, he draws you into his family. You're not an outsider anymore, but he brings you into God's family. Remember this, that when we see Hagar, who's left, who's, who's left his household, God went out to find her. And he finds us in a similar way. Here we were, in our sin, running away from God, rebelling against him. And God sent Jesus Christ into the world in order to redeem sin, sinners and bring them back into his household. I mean, that's what Jesus Christ has done. And my open prayer for every one of you who are here today is that, is that you know the joy that comes in believing in Jesus Christ, the one who came into this world to die on a cross to pay the penalty for sins so that with him in his love. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we cannot really grasp what joy you have for us. We trade that joy you offer too often in for the pleasures of this world, and it's such a bad trade. God, you remind us that true joy comes through faith, comes through Christ, comes in holiness and in trust, and we just ask, Lord, that you build us up in those things. God, fill us. We ask you to fill us with that unspeakable joy of knowing you, Father. And this is something we can't do ourselves. God, we need forgiving grace. We need you to forgive us. Father, we need transforming grace too. We need that transforming grace of your Holy Spirit to work in us and change us and draw us near to you that we can walk with you. God, bring those things into our life. We ask you all this in Jesus' name. Amen.